The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to turn our attention to the natural world of animal sexuality (laughs) with uh, author of, uh, well, a two-time National Book Award finalist and New York Times best-selling author and the author of a new book called Queer Ducks and Other Animals. His name is Elliot Schriefer. He joins me by phone. Good morning, Elliot. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm really happy to be here. Um, You know, when I saw the title of this book, before I saw the the part in parentheses where it says, and other animals, um, I had to laugh because that was an expression. My mother used to use the word queer in place of odd. And so there was a saying that people used to say, well, he, you know, that person's an odd duck. And she used to say that person was a queer duck. And so when, yeah. I, saw, when I saw this title, it reminded me of that. But when you dig a little deeper, there's, there's kind of a bigger message here for people who don't think that, um, that, that being gay for example, is uh, a natural state and not somehow a choice or learned behavior. Yeah, well, I'm glad um, you remember the term queer ducks. It's funny talking to younger people. There's like a real divide. Like, I remember hearing that term. I'm 43, and I remember hearing people say, oh, he's a queer duck when I was growing up. And now it's like, it's much more vaguely at the edge of the consciousness. You talk to someone in their 20s, like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard that somewhere. I'm not sure where. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I also had a healthy dose of suspicion coming to this material because, you know, I've studied evolutionary biology and it would seem that, you know, same sex sexual behavior is a evolutionary dead end, right? Because it doesn't produce offspring. So it's something that shouldn't have an adaptive function. It shouldn't have a benefit in the natural world. And it's really been a big 20 years within the natural sciences around research into this concept. And nature just did a study of studies um, a couple years ago that found 1,500 different peer-reviewed, scientifically substantiated articles around different species engaging in same-sex sexual behavior. And they came up with a, a variety of really compelling reasons why it would evolve and why it would exist. Um, so depending on the animal species, they are, they are reaping big benefits from same-sex sexual behavior. And the way that we're kind of getting it wrong in the way we think about it is 
Sure, a gay animal that is 100% exclusively homosexual wouldn't have offspring to pass those genes onto, but we're rampantly underestimating the level of bisexuality within the animal world. So an animal that has frequent activity between both sexes can have offspring pass on their genes and also reap the social benefits that come with bonding and alliance formation that when you produce oxytocin in your brain, which is the bonding hormone that all animals produce, but that can be produced through same-sex sexual behavior, just like opposite-sex sexual behavior. Um, Elliot, was there a, a moment when you thought to yourself, hmm, I wonder if ducks are queer. <laughs> I should write a book about this and dig into this. How, how, did, how did it turn into the idea for a book for you? Yeah, I, you know, I'm part of the animal studies program at New York University, and it was we had a few visiting scholars who would talk about their research in their species uh, where they had discovered um, same-sex sexual behavior. So, for example, in, in penguins in the wild, 28% of their bonding rituals are between members of the same sex. Uh, and and in species after species, scientists were talking about within their organism that it occurs. And I was really curious about bringing together and looking at the, the broad range view. Like, what is the, the telescope out a little bit? Like, what is going on here? Like, why are, why is animal species after animal species turning to it? And no one had really written a public-facing book around it, and I thought the time was right. Um, so it wasn't were, the, were they, in fact, turning? Later in. I, it wasn't the ducks that led the way, um, unfortunately. It was just a really um, a familiar name for people, and uh, it captured the concept to me. Were they, in fact, turning to it, or had it already been there, and, and we were just now discovering it? Yeah, the, the thing that's interesting about looking at animal sex is that the majority of animals are what's called sexually monomorphic, meaning males and females look identical to human eyes. So well, yeah, when, when you said, to, when you were talking about what was the figure, 38% of uh, penguins? Um, uh, 28, yeah. 28%. I thought, you know, it seems like it'd be a lot higher since they're all wearing tuxedos. <laughs> right, they all look like very dapper gentlemen. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Um, but because we we can't distinguish them right off, we and we have this inherited kind of Noah's Ark assumption, right, that, that the natural way is males and females coming together to have sex. Every time we see two animals mating, we just subconsciously put another tick in the, oh, there's straight animal sex happening. And so it just leads to sort of a momentum around it. And because we also haven't really been open to evolutionary explanations for same-sex sexual behavior, we also aren't looking for it because it doesn't make sense for it to have evolved through our, our narrow concept of what animals might use sex for. So, like, for humans, we allow for a broad range of motives for having sex, only one of which is the conscious choice to, like, make a child tonight. Um, but for animals, we've, we've held on to that narrow view and assumed that they, they unlike humans, wouldn't also have a lot of other purposes for, for sexual activity together. There was a, a really charming story. Um, Conrad Lorenz, a Nobel Prize winning ornithologist, writes about a story of a friend of his who was a parrot breeder. And the parrot breeder, when he had a new parrot chick, 
he would introduce it to another parrot in order to see who had sex with whom, and that way he could tell who was male and who was female by their position they took. And so he would tabulate it in his, in his book. This is in the 1960s. And then it turned out like his data was all scrambled and wrong because he had just assumed whoever was in the dominant role was the male and whoever was submissive was the female, whereas actually <laughs> it was just whichever parrot was new to the cage was the second one to enter would automatically take the submissive role, no matter what sex they were, because that's it, it sensed it was entering another bird's territory. And that was the way of negotiating that complicated territorial relationship was through taking a sexual position to prove like I'm not I'm not threatening to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna be submissive to you because this is your territory. Um, and so he had to really sort of rejigger the way he was thinking about the reasons and how these parrots were having sex. Yeah, he would have been considered uh, a, a pretty egregious sexist in this day and age, and and likely been canceled. I don't know, but yeah, it was well before <laughs> social media. Yeah, that that would make for some pretty ugly memes, I think. Um, but what has what has the reaction been to this? Because um, homosexuality is is returning to the firing line. It seems like one of the things that's happening in the wake of uh, Supreme Court potential action on Roe v. Wade that that maybe they're going to undo some of the, the gains that have been made for same-sex marriage and, and other things. How are people reacting to this book that, that oh my God, the, the birds and the bees do it too? Right. Well, it goes against some long-cherished cherished assumptions that we've all had. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was in middle school, the, which was actually another, I was, that was in the early 90s, which was the last time a, a really fraught moment happened around LGBTQ identities. You know, Ellen came out in her sitcom, and the sitcom was canceled, and everyone was very upset. And it just, we're, that era is coming back to us. But I just remember in middle school, like sitting at the cafeteria table, the big conversation around homosexuality was just like, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> that, you know, as a sixth grader, I mean, that rhymed, so it had to be true, right? Like, that was, it made it automatically 100% right. And so that was just what, what we all assumed. And it, that continues to be a, an unchecked assumption behind a lot of the arguments that people are making against LGBTQ rights or marriage, that it is something that, it's an aberration that just happened within our culture right now because the way that media is making it appealing to young people. And so when you see this huge growth in attempts at censorship of, um, of books containing LGBTQ characters for young, young people, the, the assumption is that, oh, we can wall it out, right? That if we, the kids don't have access to this material in their books or in their TV shows, that they won't decide to be gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans. And instead, the natural world proves that you you cannot wall out this diversity in sexual behavior. It is actually in, inherent in, um, in being an animal. And it's part of our millions of year natural history to have a diversity of sexual behaviors and, and sexual identities. And that's a really unappealing idea to people who have the idea that they want it to be true, that only heterosexual behavior is natural. But the science has overwhelmingly shown that it just simply is not the truth. So we need to adapt to how we're thinking around the, the ways that people should uh, have sex with each other. 
have you suffered uh, any any reaction or pushback from people or saying you know this is not something we want to hear about uh yeah, it's um, Queer Ducks just came out this week, so I am um, I'm ready. I have the battle armor in the corner. <laughs> should should I need to put it on? Um, so far, uh, people have it's 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 been met with curiosity more than hostility. Um, that you know the well, that's people good. are curious about this thing that they haven't heard about. Um, you know, and I hope you know obviously anyone can can read it and have their opinion around it. But I hope that you know crossing the aisle that we all keep an open mind to like listening first and then forming our either confirming our previous assumptions or, or being open to, to having our mind opened. And so far that's, that has been the case that people are really curious about this. Well, that's good. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think a lot of people tend to react to things before they've even explored what they are and what they're about. Yeah. And it's perfectly reasonable to, to have this assumption that, there really only should be male-female sex. But, you know, that we, we release this, this hormone oxytocin uh, that whenever we're in physical contact that produces stronger unions. Um, and that is something that, you know, for example, in, in bottlenose dolphins, um, they're one of my favorite examples in, in Queer Decks, that bottlenose dolphins have male, male friendships is what it was known as for decades. And only in 2006 did we really see an article talking about how these friendships are cemented and formed. And it's through this very, very frequent sexual activity between male dolphins and they form lifelong unions uh, and will be, have a female within their union for just a few months long enough for her to get pregnant. And she goes off to raise her calf. And then these two male dolphins continue traveling the oceans and having adventures. And then a year later, finding another female to mate with. Um, But they're, they're having this, they have this intense, close alliance within the broader dolphin society that is cemented through sexual activity, um, which that's a, that's, is just really surprising when we have, you know, our assumption that, oh, it must just be a, you know, you look at them before and you would think, oh, that's a, that's a male and a female dolphin, but this story is actually much more complicated. Well, and it's, and it's strange to think of in terms of animals because we always think of animals as being, you know, so strictly function-oriented, you know. They, they eat, sleep, poop, and make more animals. And, <laughs> and, and that's almost all that exists in their lives. But this, this book and other research that's being done is finding out there's a lot more to it than that and we're finding out emotional things about animals that we never considered before and i want to talk some more about this but i have a break coming up elliot um can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more i'd love to all right great my uh guest is the author of queer ducks and other animals the natural world of animal sexuality and we're going to take a short break his name is Elliot Schriefer, and we'll be back with Elliot after we let our broadcast partners at WFOVLP 92.1 FM Flint squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when they go to 
when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll have uh, more with uh, Elliot Schriefer and uh, the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Attorney General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. 
Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about a new book from uh, author Elliot Schriefert called Queer Ducks and Other Animals. And uh, Elliot joins me by phone. Elliot, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. That was, uh, was entertaining. Oh, good, good. Um, when, you know, just before the break, I was talking about how most of us have this very limited expectation of animals and animal behavior. We expect them to, you know, just do just their basic function in and there's not much more to it but we've we've learned that there's a certain amount of emotional activity and connections between some species um and and this book looks at uh um same sex uh partnering by various species of animals um what were some of the surprises for you in uh, compiling this book and looking at this subject? Yeah, um, I, I was really interested. I, I came across a number of animal species that really complicate the way that we look at sexuality. So in shorebirds, like albatross and gulls and terns, there's a really high proportion of female-female nests. And the females don't have sex together. They have sex outside of this union. But they do their bonding rituals and their, their ceremonies that birds use to, to come together and choose their life partner. The females will do those to each other and then return year after year to settle the same nest together, even though they're getting fertilized outside of the union by a male member of that species. They come together to, to raise eggs together. And it kind of complicates because these birds are not having they're not having female-female sex, but they are choosing their life partner as another female. Um, and, you know, we, we all know people in our lives that have unconventional living situations or unconventional family situations, right? Like the two people with, with kids come to live in a house together, even if they're not in a sexual relationship together. And it was, it was interesting to sort of think about how do you define sexuality, right? Like, what do you... I don't think gay and lesbian are appropriate words to use around non-human animals because they have a host of assumptions that don't really play out in the animal world. But what would you call these two females that chose each other as their life partners and work so hard to come together and raise, raise chicks? Um, it sort of, it made, you know, I came in already with a lot of empathy towards animals and trying to, to keep a op really open mind to the range of behaviors they might have. But I kept finding these examples that forced me to sort of crack open my mind even further and realize, you know, we have this long history of human exceptionalism, right? That humans have these really, really extraordinary living situations or feelings, but other animals don't. And I kept finding animals that forced me to check more and more of my assumptions around what animals are capable of. Well, and, and another thing that we would assume 
is that animals only have sex for procreation, but if they're having same-sex activity, there must be some pleasurable, pleasurable function of it. Yeah, and there's, it actually depends on the animal, you know, so there's one thing that we've, we've done across the board is we've overestimated the level of monogamy among animals. So, you know, the idea that like, oh, if these two male penguins are together, well, that doesn't make sense because they're never going to have offspring. They're not monogamous, actually. They just chose each other as life partners. So they're still getting the benefits of both. They're still having as young dolphins, their DNA is getting passed on but they're also reaping the benefits of same-sex sexual behavior. And in some animals like dolphins and bonobo apes, uh, we find that, you know, this bonding hormone oxytocin that they produce is really the reason or a really good evolutionary reason for them to also have same-sex sexual behavior, that they have these close alliances that form. Other animals like the Japanese macaque monkeys, which you might have seen in a, like a meme or a video that someone has shared, they're the ones that live in these hot baths in northern Japan, uh, these monkeys that are just like, it, it, you should look them up online. It's really amazing. They're, they <laughs> sit in these, in these baths and they're surrounded by snow and they're just grooming each other and they just look so relaxed, like they're having a spa day. Um, but the females have frequent sexual activity together and there's a long-standing study site that basically investigated all the different theories about why these females were having sex. But maybe, maybe they were having sex in order to um, get parental care, right? So they were getting another female to help them care for their, their infant by having um, sex with her. So then she becomes sort of like a, a partner within the, to raise kids. Or there was a theory that I, I really loved that the females might have been staging sexual encounters in order to excite the males. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you wish, guys. Like, that is like the late night TV version of, of what, what might be going on. Um, but Paul Basie, the primatologist who studied all these theories, just tested them all, and the data just didn't comply with any of them, right? So the, the, they weren't getting parental care out of these other females. The females would have sex with no males around, so they weren't staging it to excite anyone. And he just had to conclude that they were just doing it because they liked it. Um, that, you know, of course, we, we evolved sexual pleasure for the purpose of male-female sex and procreation. That's that's definitely true. But once this monkey has the ability to feel pleasure with another monkey of the same sex, why wouldn't she do that if she's enjoying it? You know, so they have a mind and ability to make choices and they, they chose to, to have sex together, these two females. Are there ever any um, sexual relations uh, that cross species? Um, insects have uh, yet uh, intraspecific relations. Um, so, and the, it's largely thought to be accidental. Um, so, you know, a lot of beetles are, are pretty closely related, even though they're different species. Uh, and so they will, they will mate across species lines. Um, that's, that's probably the most common time that that happens. But you wouldn't see a crab and a lobster. <laughs> I will, I will, you know, I'll take the scientific route and say that I have never seen a crab and a lobster. <laughs> <laughs> activity. I don't, I'm not saying it's impossible. But All it's right, Elliot, what are you running for? <laughs> <laughs> I'm open.
open to 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 conflicting data. If someone if someone has seen it, maybe oh, call in and let us know. That's funny. Um, so, how long did it take to to um, get this book together and and out? And are you what what are you working on next? Yeah, this is my pandemic book. So I I spent you know lockdown uh, logging into the NYU libraries, and you know I was in undergrad back in the 90s <laughs> watching and animal you had to go to the library with, <laughs> and get a stack of books um, but now you just look up an article and all of a sudden you're reading it so i was just in my little study doing a deep dive for a year into um into same-sex sexual behavior in animals and uh the big challenge in writing it was you know i ended up with this huge binder which is full of all the various research and articles and just figuring out a shape of a, of a book that could be a little bit more agile and fun to read. Um, that wouldn't just be, um, you know, a bestiary looking through all the various animal species. So finding, finding the kind of a, a lightness on its feet. So it would be an appealing read for a general audience. That was my big, big challenge in, in writing it. And also like, I felt really bad because I had to cut out examples that I thought were really fascinating. Like one that I kind of miss that I wish I had been able to put in the book was the um, garter snakes are cold-blooded, you know, ectothermic, meaning yeah. they can't produce their own heat. And so when the temperature gets really low, it's really dangerous, and they get you know, very slow, and they're, they're vulnerable. And so male garter snakes in that situation will release the same pheromone that a female garter snake release, and it causes all the other males in the area to come, and they try to copulate uh, because they've sensed this pheromone, but it's a male that produced it. So there's no baby snakes being made, but by rising together, they're, they're producing friction and raising the heat of that, that snake that was in danger. So this, they call it a mating ball of snakes, which I know we, as humans, we fall into two categories. Either the idea of like a writhing mass of snakes is really cool and interesting or a deep thing of horror. So I apologize <laughs> to your readers, if, uh, your listeners, if anyone's cringing right now, like just the idea of this writhing mass of, of snakes. But uh, it was it, like, it was such an interesting example to me, but ultimately I had to, I had to make choices and the poor garter snakes didn't, didn't make it into the book. Apparently your uh, editors were from that group that isn't that keen on writhing snakes. <laughs> yeah. And as, as you mentioned, we have um, an illustrator who did a series of, of comics pages, you know, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a one page introduction that's, that's in comic form, like a graphic novel. Yeah. Um, and who knows what they might've done with the, uh, the ball of, of garter snakes. <laughs> that, that is a fun idea. Um, and kudos to you for, uh, for making uh, a, a uh, pandemic project, a, um, you know, quarantine, uh, kind of homework assignment because I've talked to a number of uh, very successful writers who were a little embarrassed that they didn't spend more time working during the pandemic and and felt like they they were just kind of paralyzed like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, well I you know I'm I came to this as a primarily as a fiction writer uh, and that I found the ability to work on fiction totally vanished in the especially in the early pandemic I just couldn't I couldn't get my mind to follow one narrative. You know, we were just getting bad news every day and my focus would just fracture every time I got more of this awful news about the pandemic. So um, I was able to print out and read an article each day. And it was sort of, you know, there's a, there's a comfort to be found in the natural world. And one of the things I did in 
Queer Ducks was I interviewed six different researchers about their work and about what they've noticed in the field and how they approach it. And one thing that came through a lot was, you know, we all have struggles in our personal lives and things that we're going through. But the theme that came out in talking to these researchers was that being in nature and being just observing nature and just embedding yourself within it was a way to get a sense of perspective, you know, to, to not feel like your everyday concerns were, were absolutely all consuming that life was going on and that this, you know, Robin that you're observing in a tree couldn't care less about your struggles around your gender identity or, or who you were sleeping with. And instead was just worried about getting to the next worm and or COVID for that matter. Yeah, or COVID, right, right. I guess maybe now they're talking to each other about bird flu, um, but you know, <laughs> just they're uh, spreading the word. Um, but yeah, it's 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 there's a um, perspective taking that happens uh, when you're thinking about nature, and I didn't, I wasn't conscious of that when I was writing this book, but I think maybe being drawn to thinking about things beyond just human existence was a was related to this, the struggle during COVID. Well, I just, I, I think good for you for, you know, accomplishing something during that time because a lot of people were kind of paralyzed. And, um, and, and it makes me wonder, since you were doing, uh, you know, fiction before and now you've, you've done this nonfiction project, has it maybe uh, given you the bug to do some more nonfiction stuff or are you anxious to get back to... Uh, making up stories. <laughs> yeah, I, I, right now, my next book I'm working on is, is, is a novel. Um, so I think that is probably where my, my heart primarily lies. But, and the reason I, I wrote Queer Ducks wasn't, you know, setting out like, oh, I'm going to write a work of nonfiction. Let me find a cool topic. It was coming across this material and realizing, oh, that no one has, no one has written this book yet. I guess, I guess I'm going to do it. <laughs> sort of like finding myself drafted just because of, <laughs> the, the big hole that was there, and I knew someone had to write it. Um, you know, it's so funny you it was, say that, yeah. Elliot, because I've talked to a, a couple of uh, writers of nonfiction who um, usually has to do with parenting, and and they run into some topic, and they go to research it. They can't find anything and decide, well, if nobody's written about this, I'm going to. Mm. Yeah. It's something I do a lot of speaking to schools and to young people. And I always tell them to, as they go about their lives and just going into the future, to always be open, like have a goal and move forward towards it and whatever their career is and whatever their interests are. But always be aware of what's, what comes in like sideways, you know, that like, <laughs> the, the, the topic for Queer Ducks was not something that was in my, in my front view. And instead it was on the periphery. And then, you know, I just, I was, I looked left and here was the topic. It wasn't, something I expected to be, to be doing. And I think, you know, often we can get very hidebound and, and focused on our plan, right? <laughs> you always want to be aware of what's coming in from left field. Well, in the, the nonfiction um, stuff that you write, Elliot, what, what kinds of things? Is there a, a genre that you fit your writing into? Well, I'm always been my this is true of my fiction and my nonfiction is that i am deeply deeply interested in the non-human world and the stories that it has to offer um so you know i 
wrote a book, Endangered, which was about a, a girl and an orphaned bonobo ape surviving wartime in Congo together. Um, and that was a work of fiction, but it's very much thematically looking at the same questions that Queer Ducks does, which is not what, what makes us separate from the animal world, but what bonds us with it. Like, what do we actually share with animals that will help us understand ourselves and also feel more empathy towards animals? Because otherwise, it's it's lonely out there for a human, right? That we're if we you know we came up with this you know most most of us that came up through the Jewish or Christian traditions have this like we had a separate day of creation and we are the ones with souls and we're in God's image and all animals are made on a different day and that that we are unique, which was a source of feeling of glory and it and it produced all these feelings of human exceptionalism and it had long consequences, but. I find it much more of a relief to think about, you know, how am I embedded in the natural world, not how am I alone compared to it. And that's, you know, when you asked about negative feedback or potential negative feedback to this book, and I think one of the things people will be thinking is, you know, there's all sorts of things that animals do that we shouldn't do, right? Like animals, like spiders will cannibalize their mates after they have sex, or they will abandon their offspring the moment they have them. And are you saying that we should do that? Like, or are you just cherry picking different animal examples and saying, oh, this, we should accept queer people because animals do it too. Whereas that's actually getting the argument of queer ducks backwards. I'm not trying to argue for human behaviors from the, from the animal world, but instead I'm saying that we can no longer argue that LGBTQ humans are alone in their feelings or their identities, that they are part of the natural world and part of its long history of this, diversity in the way or that or, that, or that it's unnatural because animals don't do it right that that is actually untenable like that is the research just does not agree with it and a quick google search of um you know same-sex sexual behavior in animals you'll find very very prominent scientific journals confirming this and and obviously in queer ducks when there's a long bibliography as well how did you first uh become enamored with animals? I think it's actually something that all of us have, especially as children. This You see when, when children are around animals that just the natural sense of empathy and care that they have towards them. And I think the difference is not, not finding a love for animals, but holding on to it um, from childhood. I think we, we are kind of taught to stop caring about it. Um, especially boys. I feel like boys are sort of taught to sort of wall off feelings and, and not, not care for animals in the same way. And girls have a little bit more permission to typically in our culture. But um, I think it's, it's just, that's a very natural instinct for a good reason to, to care for things and to, to worry about them and try to advocate for them. Um, so it was kind of holding on to that childlike sense of, of wonder yeah, but, and, you know, we don't we don't actually outgrow that. I mean, even as adults, we'll find ourselves occasionally looking out the back window at that rabbit on the lawn. But by and large, most people kind of outgrow that that fascination with all the other inhabitants of planet Earth. Um, and and so, I guess I, I I guess partly what I'm asking Elliot is why didn't you? Uh, I, I don't think of it as an outgrowing. I think it's a, like, we are, I think we're kind of taught that it's immoral 
to worry about anything beyond human concerns, right? That you shouldn't worry about saving the whales when there are children starving somewhere in the world. Um, but I think that argument is, is kind of... I don't think it's proud. immoral so much as uh, frivolous. Yeah, I, I, it's something I just fundamentally don't agree with. Yeah, I think that these systems of power that endanger the environment are also endangering humans, that it's all part of the same system and the same world that we have to share. Um, and that there's not, it's not like care is some finite resource and that by spending some care on animals that there's less left over for humans, I think the, um, the sum of care in the world can be increased and, and thinking about and, and advocating for the environment for animals is just increasing the amount of care that we give. Do you think people are um, beginning to share that thought of yours um, more? I don't know. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I think we're we're sort of realizing now the consequences of you know human advancement at all costs and what that what that has done to. Well, you know, it just seems like home. there's a real proliferation of animal rescues, um, and not just uh, you know companion animals, dogs and cats, but but you know planet wide. There's there's more of an effort going on in recent years to um, uh, save protected or, or to protect endangered species. Yeah, what one of the strongest arguments I've ever found for advocating for animals was by Matthew Scully, who was actually one of the speechwriters under the George Bush administration. And he has a kind of conservative Christian approach to why we should help animals. And it's, it's all based on mercy. Like we have, we have the ability to be merciful towards animals and therefore we should, that, that we, we don't need to eat as many of them. We don't need to raise them in these horrific conditions that, you know, we have laws against even filming inside uh, a lot of industrial farms, um, that, that we could practice mercy on them. And it is our responsibility since we can to, to exercise mercy. And I thought that was a very simple and, and kind of profound implications for the ways that we can just reasonably make modifications to our own, our own individual choices that would increase animal welfare. Well, Elliot, it's a, a fascinating subject for a book, and it's been a real pleasure um, talking with you and getting to know you a little bit, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts uh, on this book and, and other related subjects. Um, I, I can't believe how fast the time has gone, um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Elliot, do you have a uh, website that you'd like to share? Oh, yeah, that's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah, so just ElliotSchrafer.com. If you, if you look up Queer Ducks on Google, you'll, you'll very quickly get to my name and my website. Um, and Queer Ducks is in your local favorite bookseller. So anywhere you like to get your books, you can uh, track down a copy and, and read it for yourself. And uh, I'm, always, I'm always very glad to hear from, hear from readers. So please feel free to reach out. Well, Elliot, thank you so much, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me and for the um, really engaging, fascinating questions. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. That was uh, 
Elliot Schaefer. The name of the book is Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. And with that, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More of the Tom Sumner Program is coming up straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, 
These days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Oh, great lovers of the world, lend me thy ears. Where has love wrought? <laughs> love has wrought beauty. Love is the world. The world is love, and the great lovers of the world have made the earth, a very precious, beautiful, and lovely place. Where is the love? Tell me. It's, it's there. It's there. <laughs> oh, where is the love? It's there. Where is the love? It's there. Do you know where the love is? It's there, Tom. It's all around you. Love is everywhere. Love is ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-moving. Love is passionate. It is flowing. It is sweet. It is wonderful. Love is compassion. Love is... Love is God. This is a song of two lovers. Right. Not world-famous lovers. Not a Romeo and Juliet. No. Not that type of a love. But two people whose love was an unrequited love. <laughs> Unrequited love. <laughs> very beautiful love. A love that very few people ever hear of. It's a story of Herman and Sally. <laughs> You've heard of them, huh? Herman was a lobster. And Sally was a crab. Never work out that way, will it? <laughs> Herman met Sally on the beach one night. The sea was calm and the starfish were bright. He looked at her and she looked at him, and it was true love at first sight. Now Herman told his folks about the girl he found, and they said, Herman, there must be other girls around. <laughs> Cause crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Everybody sing now! Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Where is love? Yeah. Try singing like that. <laughs> poor Herman and poor Sally Whence did their love whence wrong? Oh, the bittersweet pain of love's nectar. 
Yes, Herman, though he loved Sally, could not marry her, could not have her for his own. Herman was a lobster, Sally was a crab. Herman lived in a restricted neighborhood. <laughs> so he had to make a decision. And Herman made a decision which was sad and very hard for him to do. But then, being a lobster, Herman had no backbone. <laughs> Herman told Sally and it broke her heart. She had loved that lobster right from the start. He took her in his claws and said, I'll always be yours. But still, we really have to part. Sally said, let's talk to your mom and your dad. I'll show them that crabs really aren't that bad. <laughs> they turned her away, what would the neighbors say? And they laughed at the funny walk she had. Two, three. Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate. Sing out, friends, now. Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate. Once again, gang! Oh, crabs walk sideways, lobsters walk straight, and we won't let you take her for your pain. One more time now! Crabs walk sideways, lobsters walk straight, and we won't let you take her for your pain. One day on a sandbar, what did Herman see? But his little old Sally walking straight as can be. He said, Sally, I can take you in my family. And she said, Herman. Don't you street at me. <laughs> Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight and we won't let you take it for your man. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
I've got you under my skin I will sacrifice anything come with mine For the sake of having you near In spite of a warning voice that comes in the night And repeats, and repeats in my ear Don't you know, little fool, you never can win You show mentality Come back to reality But each time that I do Before I begin now Hey little Alan said I got you I got you, I got you Oh my, my skin
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 